I don't know why, but I, I have this sense of deja vu, like I've been here before. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, I have been here before. And to accept the invitation of my wonderful successes, Rabbi Beth and Rabbi Jonathan, and to be here with our younger colleagues, our president, uh, and all of you, so many wonderful friends. Uh, it is indeed a privilege and an honor to stand here before you. This has not been a very good year. First, David Letterman left late night TV. <laughs> then Stephen Colbert left the Colbert Report. John Stewart, The Daily Show. And now Cantor Rosalind Barrick is <laughs> completing her 27-year career at Congregation Emmanuel and return. How many? 28. 28, you know? It's, ne it's never enough. I mean, that's just evidence <laughs> of that. And to, to stand up here with, with her is such a privilege. Uh, we were together for well over 20 years and know each other from the wee days of uh, the Hebrew Union College when she was my student. So it, it is indeed a, a privilege. Um, these uh, changes that are going on here at the congregation make me mindful of the comment that Mark Twain uh, once made facing um, a, uh, an intimidating change. He said, um, Homer is dead, Shakespeare is dead, and I myself am not feeling all that well. <laughs> the greatest challenge for any organization or culture or religion is how to deal with change, whether it's invited or uninvited. Because people are always most comfortable with the familiar. I suggest that in every synagogue, instead of the words above the ark, Dalif, Ne Miata, Omeid, know before whom you stand, should be the words, we've always done it that way. <laughs> to most, tradition is like comfort food. It provides reassurance and security. There have been major moments in Jewish history when, when the challenge was change or die. In contemporary parlance, Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back said, always in motion is the past. Over the course of Jewish history, there have been groups that have refused to change, like the Karaites, who are no longer considered to be Jews because they refuse to change. They remain stuck in the era of pre-Rabbinic biblical Judaism. They and others subscribed to the Torah author's pronouncement that the text is fixed and the text is unassailable. They held fast to those guarantees in the world that they believed change would not be possible, even though they unintentionally laid the groundwork for change. Here are three examples from Deuteronomy. One, and now, O Israel, give heed to the laws and rules that I am instructing you to observe. You shall not add anything to what I command. You shall not take anything away from it, but you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I enjoin upon you. Two, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add nor take away anything from it. Three, 
Gather the people, the men, the women, the children, and your strangers in your community that they may hear and learn to revere the Lord your God and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. The one major difficulty to doing things the way they've always been done when changing times demand new and innovative solutions is that it's not always possible to do things the way they've always been done because old solutions no longer work. Thus it should come as no surprise that the God who revealed the immutable law charged Moses with the responsibility of appointing interpreters of the law not to prevent change but rather to serve as the foundation of change. Centuries later, the Judeans faced a problem when the temple was destroyed in the year 70. The temple sacrificial cult and its priesthood was supplanted by a new form of leader, the rabbi, for which there is no precedent whatsoever, no paradigm in the Bible. Instead of seeing the Holy Writ as solidified and unchangeable, the rabbis now introduced the notion of the open-ended oral law, which also had no precedent, thus providing infinite power to change the immutable finite law by demonstrating the oral tradition could be found in the written tradition. For example, Deuteronomy 17:18 focuses on the requirement that a king shall write for himself a Mishnah Torah on a scroll, accurately translated as a copy of this teaching, a copy of this teaching. But the rabbis manipulated the Hebrew Mishnah Torah to mean something entirely different from the word copy. Instead, they ingeniously translated it as a second law or a second version. You shall write a second law for yourself. And there was the foundation in Deuteronomy. As a result, any change in the law would have the same full force of legitimacy that the divinely revealed text on which it is based had. Listen to the way the rabbis justified multiple interpretations to the written text. Is not my word like fire and a hammer that shatters the rock into pieces? As the hammer splits the rock into many splinters, so will a scriptural verse yield many meanings as the sparks fly off from the struck stone in all directions. Today's Torah portion, Nitzavim, provides a supreme justification for the transformation of the written law. The rabbis focused on a small portion of the Hebrew. Lo bashamayim he, it is not in the heavens. They used lo bashamayim he to justify their control and ability to change the law without compunction. In this illustration, the rabbis argued about a Passover kashrut oven. Rabbi Eliezer argued against the majority who would not agree with him, even though he was correct. In rebuttal, Rabbi Eliezer said, if the halacha, if the law agrees with me, let this carob tree prove it. And with that, the carob tree got up and moved 60 feet to the left. And the rabbi said, ah, carob tree, what proof can be brought from a carob tree? 
And so growing more intense and angry, he said, well, let the stream prove it. And with that, the stream began to flow backwards violently in the opposite direction. And again, the rabbis dismissed it and they said, no proof can be brought from a stream. Then he said, well, let the walls of this academy prove it. And the walls began to crumble. And again, the same dismissive response was offered. Finally, out of frustration, Eliezer, who was correct, demanded, let heaven prove it. And a bot coal, the echo of a divine heavenly voice was heard, which said, why do you dispute with my student Eliezer? Can you not see that the law is as he says it is? Rabbi Joshua, speaking for the misguided majority, looked up to heaven and quoted the biblical text in retort, Lo bashamayim he, it is not in heaven. After the majority, one must incline. The Torah was given at Mount Sinai, and since then we do not listen to voices from heaven. At that moment, God was overheard lamenting, my children have overtaken me. Thus, the rabbis established their firm control over the interpretation of the law, even if incorrect. As the psalmist concluded earlier, the heavens belong to God, but the earth he gave over to human beings. So there you have it. Change is inevitable whether or not you like it. It is not possible to hold back the hand of time and the hand of change. As I look about me, I see a Jewish community that has responded to challenges that were never imagined when I entered the rabbinate over four decades ago. Jewish life was defined very neatly among, among the lines of reform conservative and orthodox, and no matter what movement you belonged with or were aligned with, Jews unequivocally supported the nascent state of Israel, which was basically an agricultural community, very poor, constantly facing hostile neighbors. But the support of Israel, the technological juggernaut, has become contentious and brutal, demonstrated by the fractious Iran agreement that Greg Rosenbaum, chairman of the National Jewish Democratic Council, suggested pushed the Jewish community to the verge of fratricide. Most rabbis I speak to are afraid to speak about Israel because of the pushback that it unleashes. Trigger warnings are preventing genuine dialogue and hearing opposing opinions, lest a listener be offended or be reminded of some past trauma. We've seen this phenomena in the disinviting of university commencement speakers because a portion of the community disagrees with some aspect of the speaker's perspectives. Since 2009, there have been at least 240 campaigns launched to prevent public figures from appearing at campus events. Such vigilance is also preventing comic entertainers from accepting invitations to perform on campus because they're afraid they will offend someone. Thus, today's students are being taught what to think instead of how to think. 
But that's not all. Civility and moral boundaries are fading. Just look at the number of people who signed on to the Ashley Madison website with the goal of marital infidelity. Jews, like all other religionists, are plodding along the road from secular faith, and they seem to have been freed from ties to religious tradition. In the Jewish community, is the Jewish community going to survive these challenges? Jews have become proactive in philanthropy, in the study of sacred texts, in the way learning is acquired. They no longer need to dip into their local community because they can find sermons and learning and philanthropic opportunities like the, uh, and of like-minded people online. This puts pressure on the clergy and the congregations to ramp up their offerings to provide more than just entertainment. Increasing numbers of Jews are looking for in-depth learning. Furthermore, everything seems like a race against the clock. Clergy hear the constant remark of brides and grooms and mourners and lay leaders and worshipers who extend invitations to invoke and to benedict. Keep it short, Rabbi. How soon can you do it? Hurry up with the sorrow. Hurry up with the celebration. Hurry up with the blessing, with the growing up, with the dying, with the joy. I bristle when I hear this. Brevity has become the major criterion for the success of a sermon. It's the criterion for the major success of a lecture or an address. No matter what the content, if it's short, it's good. Even if it's bad, as long as it's short, it's good. If it's long, no matter how good it may be, it's bad. The 15-second soundbite has only accelerated this mindset. Jews no longer come to pray. They come to be inspired and entertained, but not to be challenged and certainly not to be connected to the divine. Because so few Jews believe in an active God, they are content to define themselves as spiritual but not religious Jews. It is nothing for Jews and Christians to do an end run around the established religious community as we see in the large number of newspaper wedding ceremony uh, announcements in which family members or friends have been deputized as a minister for the day. This shifting landscape is intensified by the absence of Yiddishkeit and Eastern European knowledgeable Jews who once filled congregations but are now just a faded memory. Rice University sociologist Michael Lindsay comments that religion in America is three miles wide and three inches deep. Even more stinging is author Jonathan Safran Foyer's disheartening comment. Owing to the magnitude of literacy, American Jews have broken new ground in incompetence. And suppose learned presentations provide new depth of meaning to shallowness. Compounding this lack of Jewish knowledge is the blurring of lines between different faith communities. It is an increasing challenge of how to encourage strong faith-based lives in the children 
who practice the different religious traditions of both their parents. This act of blending two halves into a single hybrid, called by one half-Jewish woman, a dazzling act of ex existential virtuosity, defines the tension inherent in blending two cultures where so-called half-Jewish children are often ashamed of their neitherness, treated like an outsider with the low probability that they will ever become insiders. Jeff Kent, a half-Jewish, half-Southern Baptist actor and comedian, suggests that the dilemma should be addressed by a 12-step program. Today, the trend-setting greeting card industry offers a panoply of Hanukkah Christmas cards for families with half-Jewish, half-Christian children. And certainly there are those who deal with their nervousness about the subject by telling funny stories like that of half-Jewish, half-Irish Catholic Bill Mara, who used to joke, I used to go to confession and would bring a lawyer with me. <laughs> In the confessional, I would begin by saying, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I'm sure you know Mr. Cohen over here. <laughs> or the comment that Jews and Catholics always make the holidays come at the same time, Christmas and Hanukkah, Passover and Easter, and Yom Kippur in the World Series. <laughs> Add to these faith issues a world struggling with pollution, with environmental degradation, gun ownership, terrorist activities, all in the face of nation states and, uh, that are eroding and the resultant waves of immigrants sweeping across Europe and Asia and the rise of anti-Semitism. The challenge of being a rabbi or a cantor has become much more complex than it ever was as expectations for clergy have risen to dizzying heights that cannot realistically be met unless you think a congregation can just continue doing things the way it always has. I would remind you again that if you do things the way you've always done them, you're going to get what you've always gotten or maybe less. Surveying the religious landscape, I look at formerly vibrant religious institutions like Christian Science or the bankrupt Garden Grove Crystal Cathedral Ministries, and I see that institutions can follow the life cycle of a human being, which ends in death. I discussed this matter with Harold Kushner, and I was amused by his tragic comment about failed religious institutions. He said, some of them have died, but nobody has noticed. The tension that any religious institution must feel in these changing times is elegantly expressed by the Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai. My father was God and he didn't know it. He gave me 10 commandments, not in thunder and not in anger and not in fire and not in a cloud but gently and with love. He added caresses and tender words. Would you? Please. And he chanted, remember and keep with the same tune and pleaded and wept quietly between one commandment and the next. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Shalt not take 
in vain. Please don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And he hugged me tight and he whispered in my ear, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill. And he laid the palms of his open wide hands on my head with the Yom Kippur blessing. Honor, love, that thy days may be long on this earth. And the voice of my father, white as hair, then he turned his face to me one last time as on the day he died in my arms. And he said, I would like to add two more commandments. The 11th commandment. Thou shalt not change. And the 12th commandment. Thou shalt change. You will change. And thus spoke my father as he turned and walked away and disappeared into his strange distances. The challenge today is the burden of wanting to change and not wanting to change. This Torah portion commands us to grapple with this paradox, to resolve this tension because if you don't like change, you are going to like irrelevance even less. And so I come back full circle to Rabbi Joshua, who looked up at the heavens and dismissed God's words with, Lo Bashamayim He, it is not in heaven, and after the majority one must incline. And since we no longer listen to voices from heaven, we must embrace the notion that change is a constant reality. In fact, it is the only reality. Shana Tovah.